This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have a really interesting guest. His name is Jeff Magion Calda. He is the co-founder and CEO of Financial Engines. Uh, a reader and a, a fan of some of our early earlier podcasts had written in and said, hey, you know who you should interview? You should interview this guy, Jeff Magion Calda of Financial Engines. Are you familiar with them? And I said, yes, I actually am very familiar with them. They're a public company. Uh, they run $100 plus billion in assets. And Bill Sharp, the Nobel laureate economist, is, is, is essentially uh, the founder and the guy who put the original idea together. And I said, I, I would love to interview Jeff. I don't know him. I don't know how to reach him. I don't know his, his information is in public. How do, I, how do I find this guy? And the reader said, well, I, I know them. Let me make an introduction. And that was about six months ago. He, Jeff lives in Palo Alto. He's on the West Coast. He's not in New York all that often. And when I pinged him and made the offer of, hey, you should come on the show. Here's who we've had on. Here's what it's about. He said, um, that would be interesting, but I'm, I'm rarely in New York. Uh, two weeks ago, I said, "Hey, any chance you're in New York anytime soon?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm in New York uh, on on the week of the of the the first of the month. Uh, let's let's see what we can schedule." So here we are. It was really a fascinating conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Jeff Magian Calda, co-founder and former CEO of Financial Engines. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio, I have Jeff Magian Calda. He is the founding CEO of Financial Engines. Now, you as a layperson may not have heard of Financial Engines, but it's really an interesting company with a fascinating history. Uh, they are currently the largest RIA in the country, managing over $100 billion in assets. They were founded by Nobel laureate Bill Sharp. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Bill later. And Jeff was tapped by the three leading investors of the firm, literally right out of his Stanford MBA program, to take what was then a free website offering suggestions for asset allocation models and turn it into the powerhouse that it's become today. Jeff, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. So let's let's talk a little bit about that history because it's so it's so amazing. Uh, Bill Sharp essentially created a free website. Hey, I developed the capital asset uh, pricing model, eventually winning the Nobel Prize for that. And here's the output of that work. You could play with this for your retirement accounts. It's free on the site. Yeah. How did that morph into what's now a publicly traded company? Well, so so Bill, he's he's a genius and he is very well-meaning. He's always wanted to use the work he's done to help people. Um, he has also been a total gearhead and sort of hacker since the early days. He wrote one of the first compilers for the basic programming language wow. back in the day. And so he had his own SunSpark station, mm -hmm. as it, which is his own web server at the time. This is the beginning of the internet. Right. But no one, no one had personal computers, and he right. Has and his he own... has like a note on the DARPA right. net or something. <laughs> and uh, and so he thought, you know what? I can write some simulation software and some some optimizers, and I can make this available because, I mean, he saw early on that the demographics of the baby boomers. Uh, and the shift away from defined benefit plans towards 401ks was going to mean a lot of people had a new responsibility to invest, but but really didn't get access to very good advice. So D Didn't have the skills, didn't have access to people who can help them. And yeah. so many 401ks are under $100,000. Right. Nobody is really going to take that as a... Uh, as a client, it just doesn't work. So, so what did he do so, with that site? So he started a website, and back in the days where they used to index popularity, it was actually a, a pretty popular site. But you know, among the people using the internet at the time, which were kind of the more actively technically, right? Uh, it was much more of a folks. geek crowd. It was now a, it's very mainstream, very much crowd. so. So his buddy Joe Grinfest, mm -hmm. lawyer, he at the law school, former SEC commissioner. That's right. Um, he said, "Bill, if you really want to make a difference, you got to start a company." Bill was not really interested in starting a company. He's like, look, I want to do something good for the world. I don't really want to charge money for it. And Joe said, if you want people to really promote the idea and, and create a good product that people can really use, you got to start a company. So so you're saying Bill Sharp, Nobel laureate, 
kind of a wonky academic? Is that the uh, well, you the know, description? He, uh, why would, does that not surprise anybody? Yeah, yeah. He he uh, his 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 pursuit of sort of the intellectual breakthroughs and mm-hmm. his pursuit of doing good in the world definitely trumps his pursuit for financial gain. Right. Not not uncommon. You look at people like. Bob Schiller or Jeremy Siegel or when when I spoke with Siegel, that was he was amazed that he made any money because that wasn't what he ever expected. Yeah, he expected to just toil away in ac- academic obscurity and have a, a satisfying life. Right. It sounds like Bill is sharp is similar. Very much so. So so you're tapped. You're literally 27 years old, yeah. just graduating uh, Stanford MBA program. Yeah. What's it like when a couple of heavy hitters like Sharp and Grunfest and who's the third? Uh, uh, Craig Johnson. Craig he Johnson had, he had also the VLG. Not not no lightweight. No. Um, says, "Hey kid, come. Uh, we got an idea for you. How do you how do you respond to that?" Well, so I, so I was at the time I had uh, I'd worked for McKinsey over the summer. Mm-hmm. I had taken a full time job, so I my wife had spent the signing bonus on Already. new furniture, and we had two kids. Uh, we were way in debt, and this big sum of money comes. And what do the economists say when you get a windfall? The propensity to spend is like one. You like just spend right. it. That's right. And uh, so she did. And um, and Pent then up demand. That's what it was. stimulates the economy. Yeah. And uh, and I had been approached by a professor at the business school, uh, Robert Bergelman. He, he at the time, I think he still teaches it. He taught a class with Andy Grove, who was mm-hmm. at the time the CEO of Intel, on kind of strategy and information technology. And they had no cases on the internet. And so as an undergrad, I was an English and economics major. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew about statistics and quant stuff. I knew how to write. And they said, would you be a case writer and write a bunch of cases on the internet? So I said, that would be fun to do. I called McKinsey. I said, well, you know, I'll be coming in January. And then it was during this time that I was writing cases that I got this call from Joe Grunfest, who I had worked with previously uh, at, at a litigation consulting firm. And I was like, Bill Sharp was my hero. It was amazing because when I graduated in 1991, mm-hmm. he had received the Nobel Prize the year before, and he was my graduation speaker. Oh. And I just thought this guy was the most amazing guy in the world. Right. I mean, I love the elegance of his model. I thought his overall philosophies, I was totally bought into it. You know, generally speaking, you can't beat the market, so go for low cost. I thought that was great. I think, by the way, that's managed to catch on quite a bit. It, it seems to have been doing pretty well among the, the, the investing public. So so, uh, so I was really kind of stuck because I was like, well, I'm kind of tied up right now. And, and I, I talked to my wife, who's... You know, PhD in evolutionary biology. She's like Jeff. You have to do this. You, this is a once in a lifetime thing. You have to do this. We'll figure out the the money, and we'll figure that stuff out later. And uh, and so I was like, you're totally right. I mean, how often do you get to work not only with the Nobel Prize winner, but with like a hero of yours? Uh, and and so I sort of took the plunge, not having any idea what I was going to do. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week, Jeff Maggiancalda. He is the co-founder and former CEO of Financial Engines, the country's largest RIA, which manages over $100 billion in 401k money. And I want to talk about how you guys moved into that space. But first, there's this great little story about you playing Monopoly with your wife and you decided to let's run a million simulations of Monopoly to figure out what the ideal move is for each property and what have you. Yeah. Essentially, high frequency trading the Monopoly board, a <laughs> little bit of cheating. And your wife, instead of being angry, was actually, oh, you should do something. Yeah. How, well, well, how did that come about? So, so, uh, so Monopoly is a is a really fun game. It's mostly about trading, but but a lot of it has to do with the probabilities of landing on certain spaces. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's it's a, a game with pretty simple rules, right? You roll the dice, you roll doubles, you go again. But if you do it three times and you go to jail and then you pull certain cards, you advance to St. Charles, blah, 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 blah. Right. They're very simple rules, but it's really hard to get a distribution of the likelihood that you land on any property. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, look, the value of a property is going to be based on the probability that you land on it. Mm-hmm. Plus the rents that you get if, some, if you have a house or whatever. And, and then you have to look at the cost of building those houses. But I just wanted to know what's the probability of landing on every space on on the on the um, on the board. And turns out with computers, it's pretty. If you have a, a a game with simple rules, even if it's a very complex set of distributions, at the end 
you just play the game millions of times and you just right. see like how often did you land there so my wife didn't know i was doing this i had actually created a little cheat sheet and uh <laughs> i was using it to kind of assess the odds that i buy a property or trade a property or collections of properties and it was basically just a sheet that showed the probability of landing on any space and it turns out certain spaces are way more likely to be landed on than other spaces so what are the the greens the oranges what are Green, the greens are bad greens are bad and the oranges best the best yeah because people go to jail all the time mm-hmm. and if you play craps, so they come back around that's right you end up in jail you got 10 spots to free parking if you play craps what number comes up the most seven seven right well the other two are going to be the six, six and, and eight, eight. and yeah. those are the oranges so and that gets you there oh, and, that, really and that basically gets you they're going to jail a lot and rolling you know, anything six to nine is, is pretty good for the oranges. Huh. So so how did that then lead to the idea of, hey, we could run analyses and come up with the best probability for people's retirement portfolios as opposed to letting them just randomly pick whatever fund manager is hot that month? Well, I, I, so it only helped me get the job by mm-hmm. convincing Bill Sharp I knew something about Monte Carlo simulation. Okay. He, he had been doing this for the defined benefit pension managers for a long time because they're trying to figure out on the pension side, how much do we have to fund these pensions and how should we invest to have you know certain probability of being able to pay these pensions when our, our people all retire? They're looking for the, the greatest return with the least amount of risk and just end up in the fat part of that curve. Well, so, so that's kind of how you set your portfolio. But then you even have to say, how much money are we likely to have 30 years from now if we invest it a certain way? And that's really about simulating well, what if the markets do well? What if they do poorly? What if interest rates are high or low or inflation does this or that? Or, you know, the spread between, you know, uh, small cap and, and mid cap stocks varies. Sharp described that as a 30 variable dimensional analysis. Yeah. And so we would. So so he was already doing this for pension funds to kind of get a sense for, like, how much is this pension going to be worth 20 years from now? And he wanted to do the same things for individual to, to answer the basic question, like, are you going to have enough money? Mm-hmm. Well, it's an easy question. It's a pretty hard answer because you don't know what the future holds. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean you throw up your hands and you say, I have, I have absolutely no idea. It's a little bit like predicting other things that are stochastic or uncertain where you mm-hmm. say, we don't have a perfect idea, but we could put a range around it. You know, if you're right. all in, in very, very volatile stocks, a couple stocks, it's going to be a very wide range. This probably goes down to almost zero in a bankruptcy situation. Mm-hmm. If you're in money market funds or treasuries, it's going to be a very tight range. And Anywhere in between, you're going to have a higher sort of expected outcome, but a, a bigger range depending on how much risk you have in that portfolio. So the monopoly thing was 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 useful because when Bill Sharp said, hey, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of simulation and a lot of optimization. What do you know about that? I said, well, yeah, I've already kind of used it to my gain uh, previously <laughs> in, my, in life, although, you know, my, my wife didn't um, didn't take kindly when she found out I had cheat sheet. Uh, that's that's great. So so now I'm trying to follow the path of this. Yes. So this is a free website. Yeah. And then eventually Grunfest and Johnson say, Bill, what are you doing? Yes. This is a, there's a business here. You don't have to do the the uh, unpleasant business yeah, you, you, stuff. You don't have to do the firing and hiring. Let's guy, get a guy who's never done that to do <laughs> right. it. Right. But he, you're, you're chairman emeritus. You're yep. the Nobel laureate. You're going to be, we'll trot you out when we have big clients that we want to razzle dazzle. Yeah. And I'm based on your client list. So you don't essentially, it's not like individuals come to financial engines and say, take my 401k. It's companies like Ford and other giant employers yes. who say, we're not going to play this crazy game. We're just going to do this simply and and crank uh, crank out one of Bill's simulations and we'll use that for or a couple of options for our clients. That's right. That's right. So, so, but how do you get from A to B? How do you get from a free website run by a quirky Nobel laureate to, all right, this is a real business with $100 billion in assets a public company and generating hundreds of millions of dollars a year in revenue. If I had to boil it down to kind of one thing, I would say hardcore learning and iteration, which which sounds a lot like failure. And, you know, if we had given up, it would have been failure, but it was kind of close to failure a lot of times. So what were the we first just, few, what, would, what did the first well, few versions of this look like? So the first thing we tried to do is, and I thought it was a pretty decent idea. The Department of Labor had just issued some regulations saying, that if an employer hired someone who did not give specific recommendations, just asset allocation advice, it it wouldn't be advice. Uh, it would stay on this fiduciary safe harbor, right. and, and they could do it without worried being worried that it would be constituting advice. And and our original thought was, let's be an education company. Mm-hmm. Let's actually just just give education. Let's not be an advisor. Let's not give advice, and we'll kind of sell as an employee benefit, kind of financial literacy. Mm-hmm. 
And so I wrote up a big business plan. This was my big document. And I'm excited to go raise money. I, I go out to, Walt, to, uh, to, to Sand Hill Road and all the VCs. And they're like, this is a stupid idea. I mean, we're not going to fund an education company. Uh, they didn't really say what to do. They're just like, you know, tell me when you get a better idea. And a couple guys at work, there were only five of us, but two of the guys are like, Jeff, this is so stupid. We shouldn't be just doing education. We should become an investment advisor. Because that's how you can charge some percentage and get paid on the assets under management and surreptitiously work the education. Yes. In. And 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 what we what we really did have a sense for, and so I agree with them. I didn't want to kind of take on that headache of becoming an advisor. But the fact of the matter is most people want to know what to do. And kind of hey, you're getting warmer, you're getting colder, study a little bit of this. Now they're like, they'll just tell me what I should do, what fund should I buy, what fund should I sell. In order to really do a good job with that, you gotta be an investment advisor. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is co-founder and former CEO Jeff Maggiancalda of Financial Engines. They are the largest RIA in the United States, managing over $100 billion in 401k money. And I've described, by the way, whenever I describe financial engines mm -hmm. to people, because so many people have never heard of you, you're not selling into the retail market. You yep. sell essentially into corporate and institutional markets, financial engines, I've, I've never heard of them. Yeah. Well, really, they were the original robo-advisor. They started doing this for 401ks. We started in 96. Uh, so it's almost 20, you're 20 years old. Yeah, yeah. And essentially, you were using software and algorithms to drive investing decisions long before all the cool kids started doing it. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there was no JavaScript. I mean, web servers were brand new. Uh, Java didn't even exist yet. Uh, and so there, there was a whole different world out there. And w when we first did this, you it took about 15 minutes to download our software uh, in, when Java finally came out. And, and people were using dial-up modems. So it was kind of a problem. The, the technology really wasn't there yet when we were starting. Not, not a whole lot of graphic interface and a no. lot of uh, interesting web uh, flash this no is before java before flash before all the things we take for granted on the internet today. yeah 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 so let's talk about i don't even know if i could call them your competitors although they have talked about moving into the 401k space yeah. there are a dozen or so companies yep. the probably the two best known are Wealthfront and betterment what are these uh, other robo advisors doing right what are they getting wrong it's hard to say for sure. I mean, I clearly have a lot of biases because I've been in the industry for a long time and, and obviously we, we compete. Um, but you know what I, what I think they're doing right is that they recognized a really big need, which is that more and more Americans do need help. And there's a lot of inefficiencies and a lot of conflicts and a lot of poor quality when it comes to individual Americans getting advice. And so I think there is a big need. Uh, I think that they are also kind of carving up different sorts of spaces. Wellfront is, is going after kind of the, the younger millennial, mm -hmm. generally tech person who made a lot of money. They're focused a lot on tax loss harvesting. Mm -hmm. uh, Betterment has a few different distribution channels, including going through RIAs, yep. uh, not through corporate. Our big thing you know, has been going through RIAs. So we, last time, and, and I'm not the company anymore, so I just kind of read the press releases and the earnings reports when they come out. But company now has more than a trillion dollars in 401k plans that have hired them and managing over 115 billion in AUM. So that that's a pretty big company. It's the largest independent RIA in the country. And a big part of the success has been making it really easy and safe for an individual to say, yeah, I want you to, to be my advisor. And by going through the workplace, we get the trusted introduction from the, from the company, mm -hmm. keeps acquisition costs low. And because we manage your 401k, you don't need to sign any paperwork. You don't need to move any money. You don't need to figure any. It's just like, yeah, please do this. I think without that trusted introduction and not having to move money, it gets very difficult. So I know our unit economics quite well, and they were very, they were very compelling. It's a very profitable company. I think it would be really, really difficult to do this without a, a some sort of secret sauce on the acquisition side because acquisition costs are huge. Yeah, to, to say the least. So let's ask the flip side of, of the question. So what's the role of a live human in providing financial advice or financial planning, yep. either as an adjunct to or above and beyond 
the algo-driven allocation strategy. Yeah, and so, th- so this is something that took us a long time to figure out. We started as an education software company. That didn't work at all. Then we went to advice, but we the tagline was your personal online advisor. This was in 1998. Your personal online advisor. Our whole thing was we didn't want to have our own advisors. They cost too much. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked to customers and they said, it's great that you're giving me a tool. I don't know how to use the tool. I, w- right. I, I think I'm going to misuse the tool. So we said, well, what if there was an advisor you could talk to anytime you want who could actually manage your portfolio for you? Now, Actually, what we weren't saying is it's all the same technology. It's an it's a, a advisor center with Series 65 licensed advisors out in Phoenix. Uh, they're, they're financial engineers employees, but they're just basically using our software in a call center, but talking to people and making sure those people feel comfortable about the decisions that they're making. It's the behavioral side, not the investing it side. It absolutely is. So what we found is that at least for baby boomers, where there's a, a lot of the $5 trillion in 401k accounts are with people who are older than 50. At, I think last time I checked, it was 67% of the 401k assets were held by people 50 and older. Give me that number again. 67% of 401k assets. Sure, that would make Uh, sense. You earn more as you get older. You can contribute more as you get older. Absolutely. And you start thinking about it more because you're getting close to retirement. So when you've saved all your life and now the question is how you can invest that money, you really want to make sure that you're not screwing something up. And at least for that age cohort, Talking to someone to make sure, like, you know what I'm saying, right? You know what? You got the data right. I want to make sure I understand what you're doing. There's just an interest in knowing, all right, someone is accountable to, for, and, and they know how to use these these tools and this technology, so I'm not going to get it wrong. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is former CEO and co-founder of Financial Engines, Jeff Calda, and you got to work with a hero of yours. You you graduate Stanford, uh, the MBA program. What year was that? 90, 91? 96. 96? Yeah. Undergrad was 91. All right. So you're Stanford undergrad, yeah. and then you stay. So you really like that part of it. I like it. And I have three, not two, like? two of my three daughters go there, uh, mm-hmm. and my wife got a couple degrees there. That's where we met. So so Stanford has been uh, uh, home away from home for yeah, you. Basically. So, uh, so you should talk to them about their endowment, which is <laughs> right. terrible. I've heard. And could use your, your assistance. Um, but uh, you... you Go to your graduation uh, for your MBA, and the commencement speaker is Bill Sharp, Nobel laureate, and you're entranced. What was it like after that experience to get a phone call, uh, essentially from Bill Sharp? Hey, kid, I got a, I I have an idea. I'd like to have you help me build this into a a business. Yeah. Well, so he spoke at my undergrad graduation. I was Mm -hmm. an econ major, but. I always thought that he was just uh, a, a, a magnificent mind. I was like, this guy's super smart. And I happened to think he could, that he was saying a lot of things that could help people. I didn't ever meet him until he interviewed me. Mm-hmm. And I was shaking in my boots. I mean, I'm like, I'm not worthy. But he was really <laughs> down to earth. It was interesting. He wanted to make sure, th- this is a, says a lot about Bill Sharp. He quickly said, you know, are you smart enough in terms of the economic stuff? But he mm-hmm. really wanted to, do you know how to program? Mm-hmm. I'm like, uh, yeah. And, and what like you, real programming like, like, or like Excel scripts, like you could really, you could like, yeah, like, like real program. Now, now literally he wrote in C plus mm-hmm. plus and he wrote in assembly. So he, this guy is like assembly, oh, like assembly, machine language, machine language, like really right? serious old school. So stuff. I, I couldn't do that, but I, I was mostly, I was mostly p- programming sort of Pascal and kind of lightweight stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not really a hacker, but I programmed enough stuff to kind of know the basics. And then he said, what do you know about graphic arts? And I go, uh, well, I used to have a graphic arts business because I, I used to, I, I learned the, the, how to use Adobe Illustrator back in the way day. Way back when, way sure. Back when. Still, still around. And he said, you know, one of the most important things about this business is going to be figuring out how to communicate these principles to people so they can understand it. And if, you, if you're not able to communicate, you know, we're going to have, a, it's going to be tough. So for him, it was kind of check the box on the, on the math and economics, but really let's make sure we get someone who can solve the hard problem, which is helping people understand it. Making it simple, easy to understand, visual. Right. Graphics, are, you know, a picture does tell is worth a thousand words. Right, right. And if you can communicate this dry, complicated stuff in a way that makes sense to people, you're two-thirds of the way there. He was also really clear that, Jeff, I don't want to run this business. You're going to run it, which means you're going to deal with the headaches. He, he did say, I want to spend all the time doing the research. And he was involved every day 
in actually writing the early code, helping us with the algorithms. Really? That was amazing. It was amazing. He was, solved... it, was it a little surreal working oh, with that close with someone like I'll, him? I'll tell you what's awesome is you're trying <laughs> to recruit a team of finance people. Right. And you're like, how'd you like to sit next to Bill Sharp <laughs> working on something that we think is going to change the world? I mean, it wasn't hard to hire talent when you've got Bill Sharp there. So let me jump ahead to a question because there was a quote of yours that I really liked. And I'm going to paraphrase it. You mentioned, you know, when you're building a company, there are three key elements that a CEO has to focus on. Mm -hmm. Strategy, culture, and hires. And mm -hmm. you, you just basically uh, touched on on the hire side. So before we get to strategy and culture, yep. so you're, you're recruiting from a pool of Stanford and other top schools. Yep. You're right there in Silicon Valley. How difficult was it finding the right people and then convincing them to come sit with you and Bill? I mean, honestly, it wasn't that hard. I didn't think it was. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to say it was really hard. Nowadays, it's much harder. There, mm -hmm. you know, there's so much money, and people, I think, are realizing the value of talent. But so much when, competition and also. there's huge competition, especially the kinds of bill. Here we're sitting in Bloomberg. This is, is testament mm -hmm. to how you have to compete for talent. I mean, Absolutely. you have to have really compelling reasons for people to join your company. You, you asked me about the food segment when you walked in, yeah. this food space on the sixth floor. You want to hire someone, they walk by, they're like, wow, this place is for real. T totally. it, it's just one of those perks that people see and say, Oh, I think I could play with you guys. It's that exactly. exact thing. Back in the day, though, right? So I had raised a lot of money. That was good. The internet was really just ramping up. I think Netscape went public. 96. 96. So yeah. it was right at the beginning. And so people were hungry for this. And we had the VC money. We had a big idea. We had a Nobel Prize winner. We were in Palo Alto. And, you know, shouldn't we, have been that difficult to it, do. It, it wasn't hard to get the early team on board. Mm -hmm. And so now let's talk about the other two elements yeah, yeah, you mentioned. Yeah strategy and culture. Yeah. Culture is the one that uh, I find fascinating because it's very easy to have a culture go astray. It's very easy to lose sight on those core values. How do you focus on building a culture at a company? Yeah. Well, I'd say, I, I, I'd say that, um, it, it starts with the leadership team. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's easier if you're just like, well, what's the personality of the leaders? Because it's, if there's a big mismatch between what you want the culture to be and the, and the way that you actually act and the leadership team acts, mm -hmm. then it's going to be- not going to happen. It's not authentic. That people are going to be like, yeah, that's really, that's our culture. Uh-huh. Right. Um, so a lot of it really comes, the culture, uh, so the way I usually think about it is, you know, first of all, get the strategy right. Mm -hmm. and, and the strategy is really about where do you choose to focus your energy in a way that you can win a big opportunity and if you win, you can keep winning because you have some advantage that that other people can't compete away. And I think if you don't if you don't pick your battles properly, you can execute incredibly well. You can have a great team, but you just want to have a valuable business, right? And w it's, winning the business that doesn't matter isn't it, as important as winning the business that does matter, right? And I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, execution beats strategy every day." Well, I would say, well, it kind of depends. If you have a good strategy, then you're totally right. But if you're really executing well on a poor strategy, doesn't you, really make it doesn't really make much difference. Right. So my view is, no, you, you got to get the strategy right. And yes, that's definitely not all. You got to execute. And how do you execute? Well, first, you get the leadership team in place, because if, if you're as a CEO, if your people aren't good, you can't go and hire everybody else. I mean, you, you've got to really get the talent and the tone from the top. Starting with that core group is, yes. is really important. And then that just reflects across the, that's where the culture comes exactly. from. Exactly. And and then you, what you do is you kind of say, and, and of course, you want to be explicit about the types of people you're bring, bringing in so that you can reinforce a certain kind of culture. There's certain people who might have the talent, but they just don't have the personality or, or, or sort of the the way you want it to feel working with them. And so you say, you know, you're not really consistent with our culture. You don't say it out loud, but you're sort of, you're screening people as you interview them. You're like, this is, this is not going to be, uh, this is not, Having you as an exec might not set the kind of tone that we want to. Um, and, and culture is really tricky, largely because it is such an outgrowth of the earlier people and, and, and the senior people. And, I, and so, um, you know, I never I did not get it perfect for sure. It was something I was always trying to learn more about, but at least intentionally being aware of what your culture is. And your, mm -hmm. what your culture is, is what your people basically say that it is. You, you can't say as a CEO, this is my culture. Right. You ask your people... What's it like to work here? They'll tell you what the culture is. And then if you want it to be different, you got to say, well, how do we have to change as leaders 
to create a different environment for the for the company. So you said you made a lot of mistakes, you learned on the job, but when you look at this company, you were there for as CEO or co-founder or I don't know if you actually had any other titles other than- no, I, I, my, I, Well, when you're the first employee, you can call yourself whatever right. you want. I said, I'll be the president and CEO. But basically uh, the three co-founders or, or co-investors yep. said, you get a business model together, you get VCs to invest, you can become CEO and let's see where it goes. Yes. At what point did you realize, hey, this is working, this, this business model, we're attracting assets, we're winning business, we're heading in the right direction. When did you first get that glimmer? Well, the, the glimmer kind of came and went and came and went and came and went a lot of times before I really knew. knew. And, and, and well, in the beginning, yeah. you you have to be saying, well, I'm working with Bill Sharp. Yeah, this yeah. is an amazing idea. I love the concept. Let's see what happens. But at what point did you say, hey, we have a billion dollars. We yeah. have $10 billion. Yes. Hey, we have to, like, where did, how long did it take from start? I'm asking this yes. for my own yeah, yeah, yeah. personal yeah. selfishness questions because I'm fascinated by this. It's a startup. It's got no real assets other than the people and the uh, intellectual capital. And then at some point down the road, it's a multi-billion dollar asset manager. How long did it take from from A to B? We started in 96. And I would say that I had a very, very strong conviction that we were going to be very successful in December of 2004. Oh, so eight years. That's that's yeah. a long time. So yeah. Yeah. by 2000, are you managing assets at that no, point? So no. you're still not- No, we're, we're offering the online tool. In 2002, 2003, we had like a $30 million business. We were cash flow break even. By many accounts, you'd say, yeah, this company's doing pretty well. But you know, I was like, we're not growing fast enough and right. it's just too hard. So Jeff, if people want to find you or your writings, how do they track you down? I would just say, don't worry about my writing. Go to Financial Engines. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm not the CEO. I I I I stepped down in January of this uh, year. Uh, of this year, after grooming a, a successor over the course of two years. Uh, yeah, well, I and I'd hired Larry from Fidelity. He's one of the top guys on the RIA space, and he's been he had been there for 13 years, so he he knows Financial Engines inside and out. Um, but I would say, you know, and by the way, with the robo advisors. There's so much advice that is so much better and so much less expensive than what's been out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, consumers have a huge number of choices. You know, I, I love financial engines partly because I, I know how it was built. And, and you know, that's that's what's managing my money right now, personally. Um, but uh, but a, lot of, a lot of integrity went into that. I think there are a lot of other firms. Vanguard's doing something great. Schwab's got some good portfolios. That, that are being managed at, at low cost. I think the newer advisors are good. There, there's just a lot of good advice out there. We've been speaking with Jeff Mangiancalda, the co-founder and former CEO of Financial Engines. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out uh, our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting about all sorts of fascinating stuff. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. All right, this is the podcast portion, and, and that's the part of the show where I throw my arms out and say, let's, uh, let's, let's roll up our sleeves and go over the questions we missed and talk about um, some other interesting stuff. By the way, Jeff, I, I've been really looking forward to having this conversation because mm-hmm. I've followed financial engines at least for the past five years or so. Um, we never got to talk about when taking them public, what that experience was like. Mm-hmm. And we never, there's a whole run of stuff we haven't gotten to. So so let's jump right into that. Sure. Um, first, let's see what questions I missed. We know about that. Um, so the pivot to 401ks the, to running the assets really yeah, yeah. was 2004. That was 2004. Now it took us, a, we were working on it a year before we launched it. Mm-hmm. And we had done. Was that, an, was that before or after the customer surveys when they said you it, guys do this? It, it, it was after. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was like, wow, there might be a totally new type of business opportunity. Right. And and then we created a little prototype, and we we did a fake survey. One of our cust our, our corporate customers was really great because we needed to figure out would people really sign up for this, but we right. didn't want to build it until we knew. Right. And they let us do a survey. We're basically said, do you want to sign up for this? Right. And little tiny print on the back of it said, by the way, you know, it's not yet available. <laughs> right. Then they signed up and then we called in, them and in said- In big numbers. In big numbers. Yeah. And then and then we called them back and we literally called each one and said, thank you very much for your interest and we're working on it and we'll let you know when it's ready. 
But we already kind of knew from a pretty big test right. that, that people wanted this. And I went to the board. We had about $15 million left of that $100 million I talked about. Really? I said, guys, we, let's go all in here. This is it. I, we've got enough evidence that we've shown a prototype. People seem to want it. They're responding to sort of direct mail enrollment. Our, our, our corporate distribution partners want their employees to have this. This is it. Let's go. It was a, it was sort of a, it was bet the company right and it friggin worked. So sometimes you have to bet the company. Yeah. Though. sometimes and, and you, know, you have to say, hey, what we've been doing isn't generating the revenue, right. or it's not the business model that we think the idea is worthy of. Here's something that we can actually monetize in a way that's that's both true to the underlying philosophy and productive as a company. Yeah, and 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 a big part of it too is we we felt that we'd done enough tests. To make it a smart bet, it wasn't a sure bet, but it was a smart bet because we'd we'd shown the prototype, we talked to customers, we'd done this sort of enrollment test to figure out what the acquisition cost would be. So we kind of had a lot of indications that this was going to work. What was your degree in. of confidence in that? I mean, honestly, it was like ninety percent. Okay, so this wasn't like, hey, we're rolling the dice. No, let's let's hope that Snake Eyes doesn't come on up. It's like, hey, this is really based on all the evidence in front of us, based on the success of the prior business model, which was so-so, based yep. on what our clients are telling yes. us, both the corporate clients and their employees, yes. this looks like really the way to go and nobody else is really Yeah, now this. what was tough is I had I had a, a company where we had very low turnover. So the employees had been with me and the other senior management teams for the journey. And after your fourth or fifth pivot, they're like, here yeah, right. Again. Yeah, here we go again. And so it was a little bit tough. And, and I had to, ha we had an all hands meeting where I said, look, yeah, this is what we're doing. A lot of people are very enthusiastic. I showed the data. We kind of, we went, we talked to our customers, et cetera. Listen, but if you could sell your employees, you can sell anybody. Yeah, no, they were right? a lot of people with their arms crossed, right. basically saying, I'll believe it when I see it. And I right. said, I said, guys, if you're on the sideline, I'll give you like a week and, and no, no fault. I mean, if you decide you don't believe, then you should find something else because this is what we're doing. And I totally get why you wouldn't believe because we tried so many things that haven't Did, worked. Were there really five previous significant pivots to the, different the, businesses? There, there was there was uh, there was the education at first, the quick pivot to become an online advisor within the workplace. I raised all that money. We had a big deal with AOL to go B to C. There was this. We had one of the first freemium models. You could get your forecast for free, right. but then pay for advice. That didn't work. Right. Uh, then we did this uh, this business, which was we called the enterprise business, was tr trying to create a a workstation for RAAs to use. Mm -hmm. Then we had something we called the advice server, where we were going to sell it to the big wirehouses and say, "Look, here's a server that's going to give automated advice within your firm." And then finally, we did managed accounts. And managed accounts was the uh, and that one the, was the man magic button. Yes, that that's that's amazing. Um, I'm going to save the conversation about target date funds and fiduciaries later, but I definitely uh, definitely want to come back to that. So we're, we're done with this question. Okay. Um, we briefly touched upon Vanguard before. So yep. there are the non-Silicon Valley startups mm -hmm. like Schwab and Vanguard who mm -hmm. are rolling out their own um, robo-advisors. Uh, Vanguard is really fascinating because they launched it with essentially no fanfare and yeah. they took a bunch of older um, advisory accounts and basically said, okay, you guys are now algo automatic driven. And it was 5 billion and then it was 15 billion and now it's like 30 billion plus. Um, I've spoken with them, um, including Bill McNabb was yeah. on the show. Yeah. But that's gonna be $100 billion in, in no time at no, all. No doubt about it. What What are your thoughts? So within financial engines um, portfolios, what asset classes what sort of um, is it Vanguard DFA? Like who are you who are you holding in those accounts? Yeah, well, so uh, we're managing a, last quarter. I think it was like 115 billion. We only use the investments that are available in 401k plans. So it tends to be mutual funds and a handful of ETFs. Well, what's interesting is that the large part of the market, it's it's not many mutual funds and and no ETFs. Mm -hmm. They're almost all separately managed accounts. And really? when you start working with IBMs and Fords uh, and, and, and Hallmarks, you're talking single-digit basis points in many cases. Right. So here's what's kind of amazing. The, Meaning you're charging uh, le less than a, a fifth of a percent, less than a tenth of a percent. So if you look at the economics of that $115 billion that we're managing, 
what you find is that the underlying fund fee, so kind of the expense ratio right. of those funds that we're managing, mm-hmm. it's about 15 basis points. Considered fairly low. Considered low. Right. That, that's you, Vanguard territory. Yeah, more it, and close. if you look at the cost of our services after all the volume discounts and everything, this is this is not the cost of financial engines. It's what the employee actually ends up paying. Mm-hmm. It's about 37 basis points. Okay. So 37 plus 15 is half percent. About half percent, for the right. For the whole enchilada, talk to an advisor, retirement planning. Not, not a terrible price at all. No, not at and all. And that's actually much cheaper than what we see from a lot of places. We see at, So whenever we we run an asset management firm, yep, whenever yep. we look at a 401k comes in, and I'm talking about some pretty big entities that are fairly famous yep. that you would think would have access to whoever they want. Yes. We look at these portfolios, they're just festooned with active high fee funds yes. that have all underperformed their benchmark. Mm-hmm. And then there's the custodian fee and the reporting fee and the advisor fee. And all in, it's 300 basis points. Yeah. It's astonishingly ridiculous and it's a terrible drag on long-term returns. Totally. The good, the good news is if you look at the kind of weighted average expense ratio of 401k assets, given that over 60% of the assets are held in the top 0.4% of companies. So the Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, that's where almost right. over half the assets are. Those guys do a really good job of getting nice, well-managed, low-cost funds. Um, so, so at least on average, dollar-weighted, most of the 401k money is 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 sort of is sort of good investment options. And what you find is the DOL and the regulators are really pushing that down market. Mm-hmm. So. It's, it's going to be a while till you get to the smaller plans, but there's definitely going to be a trickle down. And I think Americans need to know, if you work for a Fortune 1000 company, your 401k options are probably, your 401k plan is like the best investment probably deal very going. Good. Right. You're getting a match. Right. You're getting all kinds of advice for very low cost. And your funds are probably the cheapest you're going to see anywhere. Plus, so what is that? So for you guys, what does that mean? You're filled with Vanguard or... Uh, dimensional or fidelity, like who's in your? Yeah. I know it varies from company to company. It does vary, but I, I'm going to bet I, there's a bias towards a handful of it's companies. A, it's about half actively managed, half indexed. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the actively managed guys, uh, they're not very expensive. They're 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 really good, lower cost, mm-hmm. actively managed funds. But what happens is if you have a fund uh, in a lineup of, of funds that maybe cost 15 basis points, if one costs 75. In the scheme of things, it doesn't I, matter. It's not. It's not going to make the cut. Oh, uh, it, it, you guys carve that out. Well, that still's in the plan, but we just don't put in any of our portfolios. Got it. See, the differential price is is cost too much for the diversification. It sticks out like a sore thumb. Also, yeah. You know, there was a great Morningstar research note, which I'm sure they rued the day they put this out. Mm. Which is so Morningstar came to fame for. Um, by the way, they're second behind mm-hmm. you in terms yes. of managing 401k properties because everyone thinks they're the mutual fund expert, mm-hmm. but their claim to fame is their five-star fund rating system. And then one of the researchers put out a piece that said, if you don't know anything about a company, a fund, or a, a mutual fund, or even whatever type of fund it is, if you did nothing else but pick the cheapest fund, over the long haul, that's going to outperform everything else, which sort of was a problem because they're selling, hey, our five-star rating system is great. And their own research is essentially saying, yeah, yeah, the rating system's great. Just buy the cheapest fund. Yeah. So I, I don't blame you guys for saying, hey, we're not going to put one of these expensive. Now, every now and then, there's an asset class, the actively managed mortgage-backed mm-hmm. um, fixed income funds. There are no inexpensive versions of mm-hmm. those. Could, mm-hmm. And you can't do it passively. Mm-hmm. You have to have some degree of active due to quality concerns and how that turns over. But for just about everything else, cheapest is invariably the best, which is really a difficult message for people to wrap their heads around. You would think that would be really easy to grasp, yeah. but people use price as a, yeah. as a quality signal when it isn't always a quality signal. I totally agree with you. All right. So that's the end of my uh, diatribe. Let's, um, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about your gap year. This uh, is your gap year. Yes. So you, you Stepped down officially in January after grooming a successor, mm-hmm. um, and that successor is now running the shop. And you said 
You're going to do nothing for a year because you were there for what, 16 years? 18, 18, 18 years, years, yeah. So you said you're just going to kick back for a year. Yeah, and I stayed on as an, as an advisor to the company for six months. So that mm-hmm. officially finished on June 30th. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I, I said, I'm going to take a year and just pull, pull pull back. And you know, a lot of what I was interested in doing was a combination of learning and, and, and having fun. Right. And so I thought, what are the things I'd like to learn that I just haven't had time to learn? Well, I, I always wanted to sail in the ocean. I sailed on lakes as a kid. I wanted mm-hmm. to sail on the ocean. So I did, I've been doing a lot of sailing and getting certified as, as a sailor. I want to, always wanted to learn not just how to play the piano. I wanted to learn music. When I say learn music, like I, I believed, and I'm just super excited and into it. I mean, here I am at 46, like learning about the basic patterns and structures mm-hmm. that underlie music. This is pitch and harmonics and resonance and rhythmic patterns and things. And I'm, so music theory is really interesting. Right. And and now when I listen to songs, it's like, oh, you know, there there are some deep patterns that once you kind of understand how these things are built, it's almost like a puzzle that you can unlock to say, what's that chord? What key is it? And what's the chord progression? What are some of the surprises, the way, that the way they're breaking the rules or, or refraining a chorus? And so it's like a way, a new way to, for me, at least, to, to understand music, which has been really fun. I have a book for you. I'm sure you've either read it or heard of it. And if you haven't, I'm going to rock your world. Good. Godel Escher Bach. Okay. Um, essentially, it's about the concept of repeating patterns. Oh yeah, okay. Showing up in mathematics, uh-huh. art, and music. Yeah, and it's not just fractals. It's just when you look at a, a Bach um, piano concerto, yeah. it's a series yeah. of. And if you've ever heard like KT Tunstall do something with the, you know, the re- the recording box where she'll play a chord yeah, yeah, or two yeah, yeah, yeah. and loop it over and over again, yeah. it's the same basic concept. In a symphony, it's just explosive. I, I recall reading that in college and just pulling my hair out of my head going, it can't be just that everything is a pattern. Is that is that true? Everything is just a repeating fractal forever? And it turns out some things are, some things aren't. Yeah. But yeah. if you like that idea of, of the concept, um, Douglas Hofstadter, I think, is the uh, is the author. Cool. Okay. I'm pulling these names out. This good, is 100 good. years ago. He wrote one other book that I think um, did really well, and I... I um, that I can't access, but this—if you like that sort of thing—I yeah. just remember saying, "Wow, this book is amazing." Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like to understand how things work, mm-hmm. and, and music is such a part of culture. I just—I love music too, but I never really understand like how does this stuff really work. And, and now I'm starting—I'm starting to discover it, and I have ideas about how it changes your brain, and mm-hmm. and and how even when you have these patterns, you know, a lot of what it is, I think, is is the song. And also the antecedents of the song, songs that sound like that song, the genre that came from. It primes your brain to expect patterns. In uh-huh. the early part of a song, it sets up patterns. And then there's this dance between rewarding you with the familiar recurring pattern, but then surprising you by breaking the pattern a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there's this there's this dance of like giving you the pattern and then not giving you the pattern that I think sucks you into the music. Uh-huh. That's that's fascinating. There, there was um the other book, if you like music. David Byrne, former frontman of the Talking yes, Heads, yeah, yeah. has a new book on. I think it's called How Music Works or something like that. Okay, and it's he. You're these are both right in exactly what you're talking about, uh-huh. right? In that, that so sweet so spot. other things. My my wife, you know, when she knew that I was going to be stepping down, she said, "I got to get you to a Buddhist retreat." Okay, I said, "Okay." She she she's done. These are these silent retreats that you that one goes on. And how long are you silent? I was for? silent for three days. Really? Yeah. And My head would explode. It was, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was definitely, you know, I, my view of it is it, sort of a form of brain management. Mm-hmm. It's like, can you get your brain in a certain mode where it's it's not worrying about the past and it's not worrying about the future? It's just kind of tuned in, and it's not like metaphysical or anything. It's actually quite basic. It's like, can you just be noticing the things that are happening here right, and now? Here and now. Mm-hmm. And what's kind of amazing about it was some pretty simple little practices. Uh-huh. Your brain gets into a different state, and right. you, you do. You kind of feel this sense of freedom, and and uh, it creates it sort of creates a lightness that that is sometimes hard to find in a busy life. You know, there's a tendency, especially in today's between Twitter and email and everything else, that people are just playing tennis and hitting the ball back constantly. And sometimes you have to step back and say. 
I just want to exist and and be a little. I hate the term mindful yeah, yeah. or mindfulness, but sometimes you can't just be stimulus response, stimulus response. Sometimes you have to let me think about stuff for a minute and not be wrapped up in that world. That sounds like that was a fun experience. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this whole gap year. Is just is is have a year filled with experiences that can that can kind of break my brain, like. I haven't seen this before. This is a new way to think about the world. This is a new way to think about myself. This is a new way to think about my marriage. This is a new way to think about, you know, teen depression. Uh, we're having a lot of problems out in Palo Alto mm-hmm. with with kids under a lot of pressure getting depressed and, and committing suicide. There was just a big article in either the Times or the Wall Street Journal about it's not the big urban areas. It's small town suburbia and rural areas that have seen suicide rates spike. Yeah. So So, you know, this has been happening close to our community. And and I wanted to understand because, uh, you know, when this happens, clearly the community reacts and there are a lot of people who say uh, it's it's this thing. It's this one thing that's doing it. And it's and never it, just one thing. And it's never one thing. But then there are people who say it's kind of everything, which means it's almost kind of nothing because like, what are you going to do right. about everything? And I'm like, no, no, it's not one thing. and It's not everything. There's there's got to be some system of effects that are causing this to happen at an unusual rate here in this community. And I don't know if I have the answer, but I kind of developed a model for how to think about it. Right. Well, if you want to be rational, you have no future in politics. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> so forget about that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about going public. Yes. All right. That was on my list. We didn't get to. Yeah. So oh four, oh five, oh six. you're ramping up AUM. At what point does someone say, hey, we could use some more, uh, use some more capital? I know. Let's, let's, make our VCs happy and, yeah. and take the company uh, to Wall Street. Well, at, at first, the first time people said that was in 1999. Good timing. When we had $500,000 of revenue. Uh-huh. Uh, so you would have been worth nine or ten billion dollars. Exactly. Back then. Right. That's pr- it's all about eyeballs. It has so, nothing to so do with profits. So I raised around. It was we didn't go public, but it was going to. The, the the idea was we raise around in November. It was our Series E it was eighty five million. We had five hundred thousand dollars of revenue. We were valued at three hundred eighty five million, which at the time was a massive valuation. Right. I mean, now, nowadays it's kind of like well, that's yeah, that's small. not you know unicorn or anything. And we were planning on going public within six months. Right. And we. We didn't. We didn't have a good revenue model. We didn't have a good business model. So you were lucky that the the oh, dot com crash happened. We saved draft, you. We drafted the S one and just never filed it. Really? We had we had a draft written. That would have been a disaster. It for would. You guys. It would have been. We we had a draft written in 1999. We created another draft in November 2007 into 2008. <laughs> so your timing is phenomenal. We friggin' precipitate market crashes. Right. I was right? gonna say every S one. Let me know. <laughs> let me know the next S one you're doing so I could get. And short. then the third time was okay we had managed accounts we had weathered 2008 really well we kind of grew right through it mm-hmm. and we were like now now we really th- this is good so I mean, you went public 2010 is that right in 2010 yeah so what was March. the valuation when you went public you know we were valued at um oh, 700 million something like that. oh okay yeah. so fairly modest yeah. yeah what was the process like going public who were the underwriters the underwriters were goldman sachs and then a, a handful of others but goldman kind of led the deal um I frankly loved it. Really? I, well, you, you know, had a good experience a, across the board. I had a great experience. Did you experience. ring the bell at the New York? I rang the bell. Right. I did all that stuff. And, you know, we had been working on this model with enough pivots that my, my board was always saying, and I didn't really heed, heed them well enough. Luckily, I was prevented from doing it. But they're like, you got to have a predictable business model before you go public. Got to have. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes okay, whatever. Makes sense. It, it, well, a, predict- to- a predictable revenue stream, anyway. To- totally. Because when we finally went out, we had an incredibly stable, predictable business model. And so, I wrote our first kind of earnings announcement, kind of the quarterly call, in kind of almost Mad Libs format. I, I wrote the story with a bunch of blanks, and I said, fill you know, in the blank. I'm, we're just going to fill in the blank every quarter. Because this is a long-term demographic bet. This sure. is not zigzags. We're done with our zigzag and zagging. We think we found something that should last for quite, should create growth and profitability for many, many years. And so every quarter, we pop in the new numbers. We tell the same story with a little bit of nuance, but not a lot. And and the, and I think that's what a great business can do is is have periods of sustained, predictable, scalable revenue growth and profitability punctuated by, whoops, got a zig or zag again, because the world changes. Right. I I meant to ask you before, I forgot. I love the name Financial Engines. Mm -hmm. Who came up with that? I think it was either Joe or Bill. It was Mm -hmm. named before I got there. It's it's a terrific name. Yeah, thanks. And if you you hear it, you kind of scratch your head. And then as you 
look under the hood, no pun intended, yeah. you go, oh, of course, this makes perfect sense. This is the engine that drives That's right. the allocation. And yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. Right. Um, I only have you for another 10 or 15 minutes, so let me get to some of my favorite questions that I ask all of my guests. Okay. Um, and this is right here. I, I did the gap question, so we'll get rid of that. Oh, before we do that, I have to just ask your opinion on, on my... So you've experienced VCs. You know yes. what it's like to raise money. Yes. I have a pet theory yeah. that the current group of robo-advisors mm -hmm. have pulled off one of the greatest scams on VCs ever uh -huh. because essentially they created this business that has, there's nothing proprietary, there's nothing unique, there's no barriers to entry, and existing players can basically say, yeah, we'll do the exact same thing, but they've raised a couple of hundred million dollars in VC cash in order to generate three or four million dollars a year in revenue. And essentially said, all I need is $90 million to fund an RIA and I'll charge 25 basis points. And if we never go public or we never get bought out, that's the VC's headache. Mm. How wildly wrong is that statement? How cynical and, and incorrect is that? Well, so, um, so, at, at a, uh, so my view is we raised 150 million. Mm-hmm. And you know, every time I did, I really believed that even though the last zig and zag didn't quite work, we right. we were going to get the right one. I mean, and they, you eventually did, and we eventually did. And so, so it's it's really hard to say. And this is what they would. It's easy to say, oh yeah, it's all about the team. So there are the zigs team. and zags coming with well, these guys right. in order to justify it, or not, or not. And so I wouldn't totally rule it out. But but you but you have to ask yourself a question, which is, how well are you on track to discovering? how to seize the big opportunity and is the big opportunity getting bigger or is it receding or getting more crowded? That's fascinating. And, and, and when we were there, there just weren't many players in the space. Right. No one was in the 401k. We believed there was a way to reach a lot of people and assets. We believed that we could get very low. We had a lot of, a lot of, uh, you had of, it easier than the current crop. It's uh, much harder for them. It's, it's much it's more competitive. It's and, much more difficult. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out, but it's, it is not, it, this business is not easy, and I think it's only gotten far more difficult with the new competition. And and some of them, what is it? Personal capital was just bought by somebody. I think Black F Future Advisor. Future Advisor. Yeah, BlackRock just bought Future bought Advisor. Bought one, yeah. and and for a number, I'm like, gee, I would have thought BlackRock could have built their own for that. But obviously, they saw something that that no one else did. And well, we talked earlier about the talent, right? There there mm -hmm. are a lot of companies with with so so or non-existent business models, but with talented people who've got some pretty good technology. Right. Where. You know, it might be worth it for a year head start to market with the talented team that might be able to move faster than you could the otherwise. Aqua hire yeah, is, that, uh, is that phrase. All right, yes, let me yes. get to, before they kick us out of the studios, yes. let me get to some of my favorite questions that we ask everybody. Um, so your early mentors, aside from Nobel laureate Bill Black, Bill uh, Sharp, who was your um, early mentors? You know, uh, my... Before I started Financial Engines, I did consulting and I was a student. And so it was all kind of, you know, do it yourself, be a smart person and try to get the right answer. And that was that. What really became hard is managing people and figuring out how, how do you build and work with a team of people. And I had some, I had a lot of learning to do. Mm -hmm. I really think my biggest mentor in terms of like who gave me the most advice, it was actually my team telling me what I was doing wrong. Mm -hmm. They're like, look, I, I'm not sure exactly how to do it the right way, but I don't like what you're doing. This isn't really working for the company for me. And and a lot of it for me was like, and I started this, I was like, look, I have so much to learn. I'm going to take feedback from anywhere I can get it. And my team was really candid with me about what we need to change in the business, what what I needed to change in my management style, you know, what we need to change in the product. That's got to be a challenging um, way to, to start out a company. Yeah. If, if I would say if, if, if you're an entrepreneur and you don't like feedback, then you're in the wrong job. That's that's a that's a fair statement. Let I mentioned a couple of books earlier. Yep. What are are some of your favorite nonfiction books? Nonfiction books. You know, I'll just one I I recently read is called Sapiens, mm -hmm. which is sort of a a history of Homo sapiens. I just got that as a gift oh. from somebody. Oh. That's so funny. You it's, said that. is worth reading, and it is it, it is an an epic kind of view of literally how do we compete against Homo ergaster mm -hmm. and Homo florensis? I mean, when there were multiple Homo species out there, you know, Homo sapiens was only one of a few species. 20, 29 or 27. The, so the book I just finished was called Last Ape Standing. Okay. And it's the same 
hey, these are the 27 or 29 species yeah. that were contemporaries and competitors to Homo sapiens, and then and, and it goes and it goes through sort of cultivation of fire and technology. It goes through the spread of religion, the role that religion plays. Wonderful treatment of of polytheistic religions, monotheistic religions, naturalist religions, and then it moves forward to talk a bit about happiness, which is like was surprising to me, but mm-hmm. I think really goes like why are what are we even trying to achieve here? Right, and then it kind of goes toward what's the future of the of of the of the species Homo sapiens, and it talks about c- cyborgs and sort of jacking into people's brains, and mm-hmm. and there's going to be some crazy stuff coming. It's it's and the human experience here. is going to be absolutely wild. So not quite dystopian, not quite the negative things we see in some sci-fi films? Or does yeah, it? do we have the potential for that if we're not careful? Well, you know, I mean, I, I talked about what's happening in Palo Alto. When you get kids or teenagers jumping in front of trains, there's definitely something dystopian going on. Right. And I think the technology... I, I predict that in, in five or ten years, we're going to look back on our kids and their use of, of 24-7 screens and social media so that's as one of the most foolish... Right. Um, hazardous thing that young people could be spending that much time doing just like eating fast food every day or something we'll say look it's it's going to be part of our culture but but the, but it could be harmful if you use the wrong way or eat too much and so there's got to be more guidelines on what's healthy and what's not with the consumption my my wife's a teacher and she always says even about the kids who are 18 19 20 she goes they're not cooked yet they're still still a work in progress and you can't expect them to make the best decisions with all these terrible influences and they're not having the tools to know how to deal with them. Totally. So, so you're on the same same. Uh, so we so we we shut down our Wi-Fi every night from eleven to seven because I don't know how else to make sure that that my daughter gets at least has a chance to get eight hours of sleep. That that that's pretty interesting. Um, so what advice? Speaking of young people, so what advice would you give to a millennial mm-hmm. or a recent college graduate who was interested in finance? Someone just coming out of school now. What what would you say to them? Uh, I, I would say I'd say a couple things. The the, the more generic thing I'd say is um, the world is changing at a faster and faster rate, and watch out because technology and kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence is going to totally change the landscape. So the best shot you have, if you want to become become you know financially independent, which just means like be able to put food on the table and have a house. As, I'm not talking about being like rich. You're going to have to have some skills that are going to be able to survive lots of twists and turns in terms of how technology changes the way we create and add value in society. So your ability to learn and keep learning, I'd say that's the number one thing. Stay agile, stay curious, and and, and make sure that you're always investing in learning the next thing. Because if you stay on one thing, the rug's going to get pulled out from under you. World will pass you by. With respect to finance, I'd say... Be very wary before going into asset management, at, at least in terms of kind of large cap equities. It's, the, the game is not the same as it used to be, and uh, the economics are fundamental. I think they're changed forever. We, we had Mario Gabelli last week. Yeah. He essentially said the same thing. Mm. Would not recommend kids jump into that unless they really felt they had no choice. Yep. Last question. Yep. So you've been an entrepreneur. You've been in the world of finance. You've been doing this for 20 years. Mm-hmm. What do you know today that you wish you knew when you began 20 years ago? Uh, you know, I, I guess partly because I expected to have no idea what I was doing uh, and I had to learn a lot. I was, I was kind of a blank sheet. I didn't have a lot of preconceptions. Um, and I think and I also think to myself, like, what would I do differently mm-hmm. if I could do it again? You know, I'm glad I had kids when I was 22 because what, one of the things you said I think is really important. If you really want to solve a problem, I think that the best way to do it is to go deep, 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 like really focus on it and bring as much talent to bear on it as possible. But sometimes you don't solve it right away and you need to pull back and let your mind work on the problem when you're not specifically thinking about the problem. But I think optimal problem solving is the ability to stay focused on a problem and, and recruit other people to work on the problem for a period of intense focus, then back off of it, then come back to it, then back off of it and sort of put the pieces together. Kind of don't always write. There's another book, by the way, which is Thinking Fast and Slow. Oh, sure. Kahneman. Fantastic. Which, 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 which I love. And it's not the blink, 
your gut's right. It's like, no, in some things, usually where there's an instinct to mate or survive, right. your instincts are quite good. Right. That They've done a good job keeping you alive on the savannah, but we're using them for, to, to borrow the, the pharmaceutical That's, phrase, it's off-label. It's what we're using our brains for is not what they were designed for. Right. And so trying to intentionally structure the way you think, I think is valuable. So, so I think I... I might have gone fat. I'm happy I had kids because they pulled me back away from the problem. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I kind of wish that I could have not been so worried about failing all the time. Mm-hmm. But- I, maybe I would have failed if I weren't so worried about it, but it took it took a lot of the joy out of it. Right. That's fascinating. Jeff, thank you so much for spending so much time with us. I yeah. think this was really fascinating, and it's an aspect of of investing in finance that I think most people are not familiar with. Um, for those of you who want more information, you could go to financialengines.com. Um, you mentioned social. Are you on Twitter at all? Um, I actually am not on Twitter much. Not on Twitter. No. So this is a whole year of no Twitter. This is a whole decade of no Twitter. Good for I you. I don't know how long this is going to last. So we'll see what happens. Uh, again, if you enjoy these conversations, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on iTunes and you could see the rest of our interviews. Uh, Check out my daily blog at Ritholtz.com and on BloombergView.com. I want to thank my head of research, Michael Batnick, and my engineer and producer, Charlie Vollmer. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.